It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. He, he's, wow, a very bad plan from the IETF. It's, it's just a proposal right now, but Steve wants to nip it in the bud. And you know what? You're going to agree. We'll take a look at uh, Netgear routers again. Another zero day, a mess. And then a look at the status of brute forcing passwords. What are the worst passwords, the most brute forced? The answer will not surprise you. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 846, recorded Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. HTTP requests smuggling. Security Now is brought to you by Privacy.com. Privacy lets you buy things online using virtual cards instead of having to use your real ones, protecting your financial identity on the Internet. Right now, new customers will automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase. Go to Privacy.com slash Security Now to sign up. And by Barracuda. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack costing companies millions of dollars. Barracuda says, don't pay the ransom. Build your ransomware protection plan now. Go to barracuda.com slash security now. And by Melissa. The U.S. Postal Service processes more than 98,000 address changes daily. Is your customer contact data up to date? Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now. Yes, you've been waiting all week long, you very patient person, for this guy right here, Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. Happy Thanksgiving Yo, week. Oh, happy. Yes, indeed. And I missed your birthday. Was it actually on Sunday? No, it's Friday. Oh, it's last Friday? This Friday. You didn't oh. miss it. Uh, oh, well, in that send case... Send gifts, care of twit, 1351B, <laughs> Redwood Way. No, I don't like gifts. As you know, once you get to a certain age, you don't even want to think about it. Well, I was put in mind because this is Evan Katz's oh, birthday today. Dear friend. And, of course, yeah. you and I both know Evan. He's yep. a prolific communicator. <laughs> and uh, he did. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> and and he he tweeted i had just the reason i know it's his birthday i don't track his birthday but he said he tweeted that it was 10 years ago today that i surprised him at the ritz carlton in dana point wow uh, his wife set this up and he and she is it was wife's name is ruth and he said uh, and so Ruth contacted me, and she said it it would just blow Evan's mind if he walked into the you know the parlor uh, at the Ritz Carlton and had you there to Aww. hang out with him. So I said, "Oh, well, what That's the heck?" Very Let's sweet do of that. her. How nice of so you it, too. It was very cool. Yeah, and it turns out he's a big chef chess buff. It I know. Was I know. From Evan, that I learned that humans just. Where it's over. It's us. over. Not even close. <laughs> not, not even no. close. But the human world championship is starting Friday. So that's a, that's on always your birthday. Fun. On my birthday, oh, they did it just there for me. You go, Magnus yeah. Carlson, the uh, uh, what is Norwegian? Current yeah, current champion? Norwegian world champion will face Nepomachi. Nepo, they call him because his name is. Well, ridiculous. I was just recommending. Um, 
the Queen's Gambit to someone oh, who has ne- who has never oh, seen it. I can't wait TV. to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, it's so yeah. good. Really good show. Uh, so we have an interesting episode. Uh, sort of weighted at each end as opposed to just at the end we're going to start off this week by taking a careful look oh i I should mention that this this uh security now episode 846 for uh what is this three days before your birthday uh november 23rd if if you want to yeah (laughs) actually my birthday i am wrong i lied my birthday's the 29th i don't know what i was thinking michael's birthday is friday mine is a week is coming up. A week next, yeah, next, next week. Monday. Next oh. Monday. Yeah. All right. Anyway, there's a lot of birthdays happening. Yeah, I got uh, confused. We're <laughs> we're going to be talking about HTTP request smuggling, which was going to be last week's topic until it got bumped for something sort of more timely. Uh, but I did mention it because it was part of an attack chain, which I thought was going to be tied into the topic of the week, but. Now it's tied into this topic, this week's topic. Anyway, HTTP requests smuggling a very tricky way of of smuggling HTTP requests across the border, literally. Uh, so that one's going to be kind of tricky, but I think really interesting for our our technically inclined listeners. Uh, we're going to start off, though, by taking a careful look at a shocking proposal being made by the Internet's Engineering Task Force, the IETF. They're proposing a change to a fundamental and long-standing aspect of the Internet's routing, which I think is doomed to fail. So we're going to spend a bit of time on this in case it might actually happen, which will surprise me. Uh, but So that's first. Then Microsoft reveals some results from their network of honeypots, and we update on the progress, or sadly lack of, toward more secure passwords. GoDaddy suffers a major, another, I think it's like the fifth, uh, major intrusion uh, in, in recent years. And just about every Netgear router really does now, as of now, need to receive a critical update. This is the fifth bad problem they've had this year. Uh, This one's very worrisome because it's so easy to exploit. So uh, anybody with a Netgear router, pay up or pay pay attention. Um, We're going to finish, as I said, by winding up our propeller beanie caps to explore the emerging threat represented by HTTP request smuggling, which... I'm pretty sure, although it's a little tricky, I think everyone's going to understand this by the time we're done. And even if you kind of get the the kind of a feel for it, it's still, it's very cool the way it works. And unfortunately, it's of importance because it allows sensitive and damaging web requests to get, to sneak or be smuggled past perimeter defenses. Uh, so uh, I think a really good podcast for everybody. And uh, we and I were talking about our picture of the week. We've got it. But this is, <laughs> a, this funny is a great one. one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think HTTP requests smuggling will be a great uh, topic of conversation uh, this year in Thanksgiving dinner tables all yeah. over the country. Yeah, cocktail party. Yeah. Like, what's, great what, thing. What's, you can, what's new? You can bring up and show yeah, your okay. show your brains. Then don't forget to tell people you heard it on security now. That's important. Hey, I want to tell you about and this I think is a 
I think one of my favorite sponsors because it's something I've been using. I started using it long before they were a sponsor, and I just think it's the best way to use a credit card online. Now, I, you know, I've had my credit card stolen online many times. Um, you know, the good news is you just get a new one, and you, you, the credit card company says reverse the charges. But so that's not the only reason I would use privacy.com cards. It's not merely security, although that is a very nice reason. But they're but it's also the most flexible credit card ever. So the way it works, they're burner cards. You can you can set it up to be used once and never again. You can more I rarely use that. More frequently I'll use it to tie it to a merchant. So once I use it at uh, amazon.com, it only amazon.com can charge on it. I like that. But even more as I think about it, I like the fact that it's very easy to set spending limits per per charge, per month, per year. It's really easy to pause these cards. Now, that's a great excuse to use this whenever you sign up for a subscription. A lot of times, in fact, the FTC has recently just kind of weighed in on this. It's really easy to subscribe to something and really hard to cancel. You know that. I don't ever worry about that because with a privacy.com credit card, I control my subscriptions or recurring payments. I can make sure I'm never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without my consent. I can set a spending limit with that service so, you know, they can't overcharge me. This has happened to me before uh, where, you know, hidden charges or, you know, they they cancel but then they keep charging. That never happens with privacy.com because you can pause your privacy card. You won't have to jump through difficult customer service hoops. They just start blocking the charges. And that's it. It's over. It's done. Uh, you'll also get notifications anytime a card's declined or tries to, and it will always be unsuccessful, charge above the allotted limit amount. So you don't have to worry about your, you know, your card suddenly taking a lot of money out of your bank account. I should mention that this is tied to a debit account or a, a bank account. It's not a charge card. It's a credit card. Uh, but I, and I've made hundreds of them now. I mean, it's a virtual number. And there's a reason it's called privacy. The, the merchant does not get your bank information. So, in fact, you can use any name and address, any zip code you want. Privacy knows it's you, so they'll approve the transaction. The merchant gets no information. So this is another great way to clean up your digital life. Um, they have tagging now, so you can tag each charge. makes it easy for you to kind of uh, allocate uh, there's a great account summary. That's something relatively new. So you could track how much you've been spending month by month. There's a summary page at privacy.com, which makes it easy to filter by date or by budgeting and that kind of thing. Uh, oh, the other thing I love, and I've mentioned this before. I was talking to my mom last night. I said, Mom, I use you in the privacy ad every time because I wanted to buy mom dinner. So I sent her a privacy card that she uses with DoorDash. I don't have to worry about it. Every time she uses it, I see it. It can't be used anywhere else. But the beauty is I did not have to text message it to her or email it to her. I just created it at privacy.com, clicked the share button when viewing the card, gave them her email address, and that's it. She doesn't have to have an account or anything. It's just the easiest way to create a credit card that you're going to share with family members or friends or, or whatever. There's a Chrome extension. There's a Firefox extension. So it's really more than, I mean, it's everything. It's a burner card that keeps you secure online. You protect your privacy. These virtual cards are fantastic. I want you to go to privacy.com slash security now and sign up for an account. You'll get $5 
if you're a new customer to spend on your first purchase. There's various pricing levels and stuff. I won't go into all the details. Just explore a little bit on the account. I have a pro, what they call a pro account. Ten bucks a month gives me one percent back. It more than pays for itself because I use privacy every time I'm online. I'm a huge fan. Privacy.com/slash/security now. Sign up uh, today. We thank them so much for supporting Security Now. They know, of course, that your audience, Steve, is very privacy and security focused. It's a natural audience for uh, privacy.com. Thank you, privacy.com. Well, and we've talked about this. I'm, you know, I'm absolutely a fan of this concept. Like you, I I used to get, uh, it used to be when I was traveling to Northern California for the holidays, Back in the old days, I would use a travel agent, and she would invariably say, well, Steve, uh, do you still have the credit card number you had last year? Because typically the answer was no, that one got loose. Yeah, right. So they, oh, I've shown mine the on the one. air. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's – just, uh, and you, we talked about it before we had privacy as an advertiser because it used to be other – some card companies would do this. Yes. They've all stopped. Yes. And uh, this is the, this is by far the, the you know the best way to do it. It's the easiest, and it's completely digital, which is fantastic. So yeah. So our picture of the week. I love it. I love it. Shows. I'm not sure. Maybe there's drugs behind there because there's sort of a medical theme to this. Uh, <laughs> It's it's going to be difficult for me to describe. I would recommend that people get the show notes if you if you don't if you're curious. Um, now, are those forceps or uh, sutures? The they're, those, I think could, they're forceps. Yeah. Okay. So they're, yeah, they're like so, scissors with a point that you can clamp. Correct. And well, and then at the, down at the back where your finger loops are is a ratchet, so you're able to to right. to close them and then like lock them closed. So okay, so people have seen like surgical scissors, right? Forceps. Um, the the problem that this enterprising individual solved was how to lock a cabinet that had two uh, handles where where there was like a, you know an air gap underneath the handle. Like so, in order to to open this cabinet, you'd slip your fingers under the handle and then pull it towards you. Well. Th- this cabinet is not locking yet clearly they need to lock it well they have a padlock but the padlock you know is the standard size padlock with a hasp that of the normal size it won't straddle these two handles which are on opposite sides you know are on opposite doors to this cabinet so the person opened these forceps slid them slid one of the handles through the middle of the forceps between the finger loops, then locked the forceps, which brought the loops, the two loops of the forceps close enough to the other handle that they were able to open the padlock, run it through both loops of the forceps, thus keeping them closed and locked, and through the other handle, and then lock the padlock. The sort of so the basically the forceps sort of form an extension of this padlock. Anyway, it's extremely clever, and you know you could imagine sort of like an intellectual puzzle if someone said, "Here's what you got to work with. You know, you got a crayon, and you got forceps, and you got a padlock, and you're 
job. Your goal here is to lock this cabinet. It's like, okay, how many people are going to figure that out? I'm not, I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks, by the way, to Encrypted Beard in our IRC who says he sent that to you. Oh, yes, yes indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I, this effort or this idea, this uh, a scheme from the IETF, well, I titled this An Idea Whose Time Has Passed. Okay, now I got to create some background here for everyone who, who isn't like really tuned up on Internet IP addresses and protocols and things, as we know. Um, there are several ranges of IPv4 addresses that are formally designated as unroutable. Three ranges of addresses were originally specified and set aside by RFC 1918, and that's almost when that one was published. Uh, well, actually, no, it was in 96, 1996. The smallest of these three unroutable networks or address ranges uh, is the one which most consumer routers use for their default local LAN. And I'm sure most people are familiar with that, right? 192.168 and then often .0 or .1. Um, consequently, any IPv4 address beginning with 192.168 is considered to be part of a local private network and no public routers will forward packets addressed to those IPs anywhere. Okay, in the case of 192.168.whatever.whatever, um, this creates a nice block of 64,000 IPs because, you know, each of those each of those numbers is a byte. So we got two bytes, so that's 16 bits, and so that's 64K IPs. And 10 dots unroutable as well, right? Well, correct. So they're, so that so that's the small one. The middle size one, which RFC 1918 reserved, was 172.16.anything.anything through 172.31.anything.anything. Now, so that provides a network having 20 bits, the 20 least significant bits of those IPs are reserved for specifying the machine within that network. So that's one million machines. And the third and largest is the one you mentioned, Leo, is 10 dot. Uh, so that's anything beginning with 10 dot anything, anything, anything. So that gives us 24 bits for specifying a specific machine, which is, and that 24 bits is 16 million machines on the local network. So those are super ample for, for non-routable IP ranges. And as we know, <clears throat> for quite some time, there were so many IPv4 IPs that some were never allocated. Back when we first were using the and talking about and fans of the Hamachi virtual network system, it was cleverly using the five dot network since no one ever had the, the, the five dot had never been allocated. It was so it wasn't like reserved. It just no one ever got around to needing it. And so the the, the, the guy who did it was super clever. He said, hey, you know, I, I can't use the the RFC 1918 networks like 10 dot because people might want to use Hamachi on a 10 dot network 
And so I, I, the, the network we use for Hamachi has to be disjoint. It has to be completely separate. Um, but it can't be a, any public routable IP or things would never be able to get to Hamachi. Anyway, so clever that he thought to use five dot. And, of course, it got allocated some time ago because, as we know, with time, IPv4 space has become depleted. And, you know, someone looked over and said, hey, there's 16 million IPs that, you know, that begin with five that no one's ever used. Let's start handing them out. And so they're all they're all gone now. OK, so another set aside block of IPv4 space are all those addresses beginning with 127. Anyone who's spent much time poking around with IP networking on any IP-enabled operating system will have encountered the concept of the local loopback IP or really the loopback network of which that is of which one IP is most often used by universal con- convention and explicit specification 127.0.0.1 always refers to the local machine like the machine you're at it has an IP of 127.0.0.1 and whatever other IP, like from the LAN or WAN or whatever. So you can kind of think of 127.0.0.1 as an alias for the local machine's IP. If you ping 127.0.0.1 on any machine that you're at and that you're in front of, while any portion of your local network is running, that pinging is guaranteed to succeed. If the local net stack is up because it causes the machine to essentially ping itself. No packets go anywhere. Um, and and it, this is used for all kinds of purposes. Many developers running a local web or some other server on a machine will bind that server's IP to some port on 127.001, like 127.0.0.1 you know, colon 80, for example, for for uh, web services. And that makes that that bound servers services available to any client running on that machine. So, for example, you could put into your web browser 127.0.0.1. And if there was something bound on port 80 or 443, you would get the page that that web server was displaying. So, that's the story. Now, although only 127.0.0.1 is typically used, the entire 127 dot network of 16 million IPs has been set aside as a local loopback network. And in fact, if you open a Windows command prompt uh, and enter the command route space print, or, you know, Linux, you, you can print the routing table in Linux or Unix or Mac OS. You know, any Internet-based operating system has its own local routing table. Um, and in the show notes, I've got the result of my typing route space print. And there's you have a couple entries for the local machine's actual IP. But then in the table, I see 127.0.0.0. 
with the net mask of 125.0.0.0, meaning that that entire network is recognized and will be routed to the interface 127.0.0.1. In other words, you know, this routing table in the machine I'm sitting in front of has allocated the entire 127 dot network for its own local use. And that's 16 million IPs, right? Because it's got the all of the lower 24 bits are are available underneath the 127. Um, so, um, um, on page 31 of the RFC that set this up, it's RFC 1122, dated way back even before that uh, – uh, 1918. Uh, this th- this one is from 1989. RFC 1122, page 31 of that RFC of R- that RFC, very clearly states um, 127, and then any though no, any bits, and it says internal host loopback address. Addresses of this form must not, and you know this is in the formal RFC language. So all capitals must, all capitals not, appear outside a host. Um, and that explains why I did a serious double take, and I really did check the date to be certain it didn't say April first when. Last week, I encountered an official IETF standards track proposal titled Unicast Use of the Formerly Reserved 127-8. Okay, so Unicast is the formal name just for standard packets, for example, as opposed to broadcast or multicast. You know, unicast is what everything is, mostly, except for when when they're not. Um, you know, so all the packets we talk about, going places, those are unicast packets. They're sent to a specific address. So this thing says, unicast use of the formerly reserved, formerly reserved 127-8 network is what it's saying. So... This pending IETF proposal is suggesting that the definition of the 127.ClassA network should be changed to allow most of its 127.space to be publicly routable in order to provide nearly 16 million more IPv4 addresses. So, okay, the abstract for this insanity, it's very short. It says, this document redefines the IPv4 local loopback network as consisting only of the 64K, actually it says, you know, 65536, addresses 127.0.0.0 to 127.0.255.255. In other words, in networking 
no no notation, you know, net mask notation, 127.0.0.0 slash 16. It asks implementers, which, you know, is everyone, to make addresses in the prior loopback range 127.1.0.0 through 127.255.255.255 fully usable for unicast use on the Internet. Okay, now, in other words, the routing table in everyone's computer is now wrong. It won't work. It's broken. It won't send any packets beginning with 127 anywhere. But the, the IETF, and this is not April Fool's, uh, they're saying, yeah, uh, uh, we changed our mind. And we, we're, you know, we'd like to have those addresses back, please. Okay, so... Since I think this is so interesting, and I'm oh my sure God. this is a nightmare. I, it, it, Leo, it's oh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I, since I'm sure that any of this podcast listeners who are aware of internet engineering, as you obviously are, Leo, are currently picking themselves up off the yeah. floor. I'm going to share a few more of the good bits from the proposal. So, like what? <laughs> so, introduction. They say, with ever-increasing pressure to conserve IP space on the Internet, uh, <clears throat> IPv6, uh, it makes sense to consider where relatively minor changes, okay, first of all, you know, <laughs> relatively minor, okay, changes can be made to fielded practice to improve numbering efficiency. One such change proposed by this document is to allow the unicast use of more than 16 million historically, because, okay, it is more, because it's like 16 million 700 and something or other. So, yeah, more than 16 million historically reserved addresses in the middle of the IPv4 address space. This document provides history and rationale to reduce the size of the IPv4 local loopback network, and they have in parens quoted local net, from a slash 8 to a slash 16, freeing up over 16 million IPv4 addresses for other possible uses. They said when all of 127.0.0.0 slash 8 was reserved for loopback addressing, IPv4 addresses were not yet recognized as scarce. Today, there is no justification, and, and I agree with them on this point, there's no justification for allowing one 256th of all IPv4 addresses for this purpose. When only one of these addresses, 127.0.0.1, is commonly used, and only a handful are regularly used at all. Unreserving the majority of these addresses, 
provides a large number of additional IPv4 host addresses for possible use, alleviating some of the pressure of IPv4 address exhaustion. So, because I think this is so interesting, they said, background. The IPv4 network 127-8 was first reserved by John Postel in 1981 under RFC 0776. Postel's policy was to reserve the first and last network of each class. And it does not appear that he had a specific plan for how to use 127-8. Apparently, the first operating systems to support a loopback interface, as we understand it today, were experimental Berkeley Unix releases by Bill Joy and Sam Leffler at the University of California, Berkeley. The choice of 127.0.0.1 as loopback address was made in 1983 by Joy and Leffler in the code base that was eventually released as 4.2 BSD. Their earliest experimental code bases used 254.0.0.0 and 127.0.0.0 as loopback addresses. Three years later, Postel and Joyce Reynolds documented the loopback function in November of 1986 in RFC 990, and it was codified as a requirement for all Internet hosts three years after that in RFC, the one I mentioned first, 1122. The substantive interpretation of these addresses has remained unchanged since RFC 990 indicated that the network number 127, that is the entire network number 127, is assigned the loopback function. That is, a datagram sent by a higher-level protocol to a network 127 address, meaning any, any IP beginning with 127 dot, should loop back inside the host. No datagram sent, and they had that in quotes, because to a network 127 address should ever appear on any network anywhere. Many decisions about IPv4 addressing contemporaneous with this one underscore the lack of concern (laughs) about address scarcity. It was common in the early 1980s to allocate an entire slash eight to an individual university, a company, a government agency, or even a research project. After all, no one's using this crazy Internet, and we have 256 of those slash eight networks. So, you know, let's just give them out. By contrast, they write IPv6, despite its vastly larger pool of available address space, allocates only a single loopback local loopback address, colon, colon, one, as that's defined in RFC 4291. This appears, they write, to be an architectural vote of confidence in the idea... (laughs) 
that Internet protocols ultimately do not require millions of distinct loopback addresses. No, one would do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like what most people use, right? Yeah. 127 This is local host. This is home sweet that's home. It. Yeah. That's, that's right. They said most applications use only the single loopback address 127.0.0.1, local host. For IPv4 loopback purposes, although there are exceptions, for example, the SystemD resolved service on Linux provides a stub DNS resolver at 127.0053, oh, which is kind of huh. cute because port 53 is DNS's port. So hmm. it's like, let's give it, you know, 127.0053, probably, you know, bound to port 53. They, they finished this section. In theory, having multiple local loopback addresses might be useful for increasing the number of distinct IPv4 sockets that can be used for inter-process communication within a host. The local loopback slash 16 network retained by this document, that is, remember, so 127.0, that we get to keep that. So dot zero dot anything dot anything. It's 127.1 all the way up to 127.255. That's what they're proposing removing. So you get to keep a dot sixteen, which means there there would be sixty four k, you know, six five five three six um, IPs each that could have a port, you know, sixteen bits uh, ports of sixteen bits. So basically, you have thirty two bits of local connectivity, and that's as we know four point three billion. So that that ought to be enough because again, mostly we're using one twenty seven zero zero one. And they finish with uh, Section 3 titled Change in Status of Addresses Within 127-8. The purpose of this document is to reduce the size of the special case reservation of 127-8 so that only 127.0-16 is reserved as the local loopback network. Other IPv4 addresses whose first octet is 127, which is to say 127.1 through 127.255, are no longer reserved and are now available for general Internet unicast use treated identically to other IPv4 addresses and subject to potential future allocation. <laughs> All host and router software should, in all caps, treat 127.1 through 127.255 as a global unicast address range. Clients for auto configuration mechanisms, such as DHCP, should, all caps, accept a lease or assignment of addresses because you know, like they won't now they go what anyway should accept a lease or assignment of addresses within 127.1 through 127.255 whenever the underlying operating system is capable of accepting it servers for these mechanisms should assign this address when so configured Okay, now, <laughs> in this case, 
I'm not even going to rhetorically ask what could possibly go wrong because the, the question doesn't need to be asked. The question is, what have these people been smoking? Is, <laughs> they probably were using have, one of those old forceps to do it, whatever it was. Oh, yeah. yes. I, that way you could smoke it right down to the bitter end. Wow. Okay, just think. Just, just think of all the many millions of existing embedded TCPIP stacks in all the many millions of existing IoT devices that sold and shipped with with what has since the dawn of the internet been a default local routing table that will never forward any packet starting with 127 just like they said in section 2 it's like yeah 127 should never appear on any network and now they're saying uh well uh could we change our mind? Uh, no, you, you you can't change your mind. You know, every internet device, every appliance there is has has a routing table like Windows in front of me. Like everybody has, whatever, even your phone. You know, every well, that's probably IPv6 uh, from 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 carriers. But as we know, none of these existing devices will ever be updated or changed. And what of all the many millions of small office, home office, you know, Soho routers running embedded Linuxes that will also never be updated and will similarly never forward any packets starting with 127? You could send one into it and it would die there because its stack won't forward it. It won't send it anywhere. Its stack says... Anything beginning with 127 goes to the local interface. That is just, you know, it just, it it dies when it hits a stack like that. So what's interesting to me is from a political standpoint, the only way to read this is as an extreme desperation move, which is really interesting for its own sake, and an appreciation of just how badly no one wants to move to IPv6. You know, we've had it, what, 20 years? No. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see what happens to this proposal. Uh, you know, those of us who see the folly of this are not alone. Uh, I grabbed a sampling. Here's a sampling of nine tweets uh, from just one thread on Twitter when someone mentioned this upon finding it, uh, Ben Avling tweeted, was it a mistake to allocate an entire A class to the loopback range? Yes. Yes, it was. Is it too late to fix that mistake? Yes. Yes, yes, yes it, it is. is. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Rich, Rich Merch tweeted, real products use it. For example, F5's Big IP has several subnets under 127-8. Loopback is configured as a slash 24. And I have a screenshot in the show notes. It's very dim, but you can see a 127.2.0.2 slash 24. 
uh, a 127.1.1.254 slash 24, a 127. Looks like 20.0.254 slash 16. The point is, because these have been unusable, people have used them, you know, within a controlled environment like F5's Big Five products. They're able to say, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, since it's absolutely impossible to route these, we can use them safely. Andy90 tweeted, TLS 1.2 was around for so long that most middle box vendors didn't handle handshakes appropriately. Thus, TLS 1.3 has to masquerade as 1.2. He said, I dread to think how many network tools simply are hard-coded and untested for anything like this and would break routing on the spot. Jim Cletus tweeted, I've seen 127 addresses in backbone hops. That's that's sort of what F5 is doing. He says, there's much better waste to go after. IBM, colon, or then he says, slash eight. HPE, of course, HP Enterprise, right? Slash eight. Xerox, slash eight. He says, then the tech universities and anything the DOD still has. And, of course, we've talked about this before, right? And he's right. There, there are ridiculously large current reservations that are absolutely not in use. Luca Francesca said, if only we had an alternative like, I don't know, IPv6. I know, uh, I know, bleeding-edge stuff. It's only 20 years old. One Matt among, among many tweeted, Thinking of the number of firewall rules I've seen, by default, every one of them, which have allow 127-8, he says, please just use IPv6 already. Pascal Ernster tweeted, Before even considering, and he has that in asterisks for emphasis, embarking on this journey of nonsense, (laughs) they should reassign a dozen of the 14 slash eights that the DOD has. And when those have been reassigned, continue with the slash eights that are currently assigned to Apple, Ford, Prudential, and the United States Postal Service. He says, heck, I'd even go as far as saying that all slash eights should be reassigned to regional Internet registries. Jonathan Katz tweeted, other than security, there is the practicality of this. I'm sure there is lots of software, legacy and otherwise, out there with 127 slash 8 hard-coded in it, which would break badly. And that includes every operating system we're using today. And finally, David tweeted, pretty much all operating systems boot up with a 127.0.0.0 slash 8 loopback by default. Changing that would require updates to software and firmware or changes to startup scripts. These newly routable addresses would be inaccessible to many devices. Who would want them? And that well, really that's is a good point. point. You're freeing up yes. stuff nobody would want anyway. 
Exactly. That's a really no, good no, point. N- nobody, n- you just couldn't ever know that you were like, you know, you get all set up and you hook yourself onto the internet and uh, why is it so quiet? I'm not, I'm not getting, <laughs> why am I not getting any, I, you know, I got 127.2.0.0 and it's, nothing's coming in. <laughs> Nobody's going to use it. Uh, uh, and, you know, the points that were made about all the other low-hanging right. slash eight networks, I think were really interesting and right on point. It must be that companies see their legacy allocations as corporate assets. Yep, yep. They must know that they'll never, ever have any need for nearly that much space as they currently own. And and what's I guess it must just be I mean for for the IETF to be considering this craziness, it it just must be that it's like what is it impolite to say uh you know uh Xerox really <laughs> do, do you need all that sixteen million IPs really you know because like the world wants them. Uh, and it's, it's, as a matter of fact, IPv4 addresses are currently trading at $36 a piece. And a 16 million slash 8 allocation is currently valued at more than half a billion dollars. Wow. Wow. So that price has been rising steadily through the years as IPv4, uh, you know, uh, desperation has been increasing so you can imagine that corporations are sitting on these things like hey uh what, you know we're that this is appreciating faster than bitcoin yeah we're just gonna yeah. sit here and uh <laughs> and wait until we get like to till this levels off at some point ipv6 will start happening and then when we see the price stop increasing then we'll start letting some of our you know slash eight allocation up for sale but you know it's difficult to defend having the non-profit u.s department of defense squatting on so many slash eight blocks um you know i don't know somebody one of our techie senators we do have a few Thank goodness. Uh, they ought to take a look at that mm-hmm. and go, uh, you know, DOD, um, mm-hmm. you don't need all that. Wow. Anyway, I thought it was really interesting. Of course, the counterpoint is IPv6. Uh, it's there. It's ready to use. But, boy, there is really some pressure against doing so. I'm, I'm feeling some pressure to uh, take a sip of water, Leo. And uh, I think this would be a, a good okay, time okay. to remind our listeners why we're here. Yes. Well, I'm here to do your ads. That's why I'm here and happy to do it. Mighty happy to do it. Our show today. Uh, let's see. Well, I want to get the right ad. That would that, that Since that's my only job, I should probably do that right. Huh? Our, sh- <laughs> our show today brought to you by... Barracuda. We love Barracuda. I just love the name Barracuda. But we also use Barracuda, and that's a good reason to love Barracuda. Every 11 seconds, there's a new ransomware attack. God, that's just dis- depressing. And they take, they're take they taking such a toll on organizations. The U.S. government actually now classifies them as terrorism. That's right, too. 
According to the 2021 Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, ransomware has more than doubled since last year. In its most recent Threat Spotlight Research blog post, by the way, these are well worth reading. They're on the Barracuda website. Barracuda identified and analyzed. They just looked at some specific ones, 121 particular ransomware incidents, uh, August through July of this year. 64% increase in attacks year over year. You've seen the news. Oil pipelines, universities, corporations, all paying millions of dollars. Barracuda says, and it's not lip service, although it's a, it's a catchy slogan, don't pay the ransom. Don't. Instead, protect yourself and your company before a ransomware attack occurs. That's really your only choice, I think. Attacks start with, you know, often with an innocent-looking email trying to trick your employees into revealing important things like usernames and passwords. So step one is train your teams to recognize these attacks and uh, maybe deploy any phishing technology. We do both of those, of course. Step two, secure your web applications. This is a big one. File sharing services, web forms, e-commerce sites very often have flaws, weak points that hackers know about, they're looking for. They scan for them with Shodan. And once they're there, once they've got your applications, they go in after your business data. So it's, you know, it's like a backdoor, really. Protect your applications Close that back door, lock it up, and then finally back up your data. Today's backup solutions make it simple and fast to protect archives and backup or restore an entire server and individual file. There's many good reasons to have a strong backup. Ransomware is just one of them. And if you do get hit, well, you can just recover your data without paying the ransom. So... Barracuda says, to reiterate, don't pay the ransom. Build your ransomware protection plan now before it's too late. Go to barracuda.com slash security now for lots of useful tools and information. B-A-R-R-A-C-U-D-A, barracuda.com slash security now. Don't pay the ransom. Build your ransomware protection plan at barracuda.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support it's nice to have things that we can do you know instead of just passively waiting for it to happen i'm a big fan of being active proactive not reactive yep. uh, back to steve more security now yeah so um microsoft actually has a job position known as i'm not kidding leo head of deception <laughs> now that's a job i want I love and now that. I figured, I figured he was leading the Windows 11 team, but no. <laughs> That's their marketing department. No. Oh, no, no. There actually is a position, head of deception. The slot is currently occupied by a security researcher named Ross Bevington. Ross is the guy who puts uh, uh, pots of tasty honey out onto the Internet, thus the deception, and collects all of the attempts that are made to get in. Uh, he spent 30 days collecting more than 25 million brute force attacks against a tantalizing SSH server. And he came away with a few interesting insights. Uh, the graph that is here in the show notes shows one of the things which he came up with. This is a distribution of SSH passwords seen in brute force attacks by length 
of the password brute forced. And this shows a big peak uh, at six, meaning six what? character. Pa- I know six character <laughs> passwords. Thirty percent of all passwords used in brute force attempts are six characters in wow. length. Wow. Crazy. Um, so 25 million brute force attacks. Uh, and here's what he found. He found that 77%, just over three quarters of all attempts, guessed a password between one and seven characters. So, again, the, the brute forcers are brute forcing what they have learned works. Three quarters, 77%, are guessing between one and seven characters. A password over 10 characters was only seen in 6% of brute force attempts. Only 7% of the brute force attempts analyzed in that sample data included a special character. Let me say that again. Only 7% of brute force attempts included a special character. 39% had at least one number, and none, not one, of the brute force attempts used passwords that included white space. So, oh, that's interesting. I never even thought that, of it. C- isn't that white space? Huh? Uh huh. Apparently, no one has, and so no one brute forces. So, there's oh, a little takeaway know, yeah. for our password designers. Yeah. Ross's conclusion is that the attackers don't bother attempting to brute force long passwords. They just they they know that the 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 uh the password space is too large for them, you know, to try. And so as as this graph shows, this peaks at 6, drops down to about 14% uh, there were seven characters in length. 10% there were eight characters in length. For some reason, there's a little increase at nine characters, but then it the, the just has a tail. It falls off to 5% that were 10 characters long. Uh, looks like maybe about 2% were 11 characters long and 1% were 12 characters long. And so, you know, the good news is long passwords are your friend. Uh, they are not going to get brute forced based on the data that Microsoft has collected. Um, He said that based upon data from more than 14 billion brute force attacks attempted against Microsoft's network of honeypot servers through September of this year, attacks on remote desktop protocol servers had tripled compared to 2020, which, you know, tracks everything that we've been seeing and that we've been talking about. Um, They saw a rise of 325%. Network printing services saw an increase of 178%, as well as Docker and Kubernetes systems, which saw a relatively smaller increase of 110%. So attacks are on the rise. Uh, you know, you really don't want to expose RDP to the Internet without lots of additional uh, protection. And as I've said, the thing to do is to put it behind a VPN so you can use a, a VPN's uh, security, then get to the RDP server, log it to that. Um, tied into that was a report just issued from NordPass. Um, they published their annual analysis 
of password use across 50 countries. The top 10 (laughs) most common passwords, like still in 2021, currently are the absolute most used password. And this also explains, by the way, Leo, why there's a, a, a peak on six character long passwords. The thing that is holding that that the the pole under that tent that is that chart is the password one two three four five six. Oh Lord, Count for SSH. Digits. I mean, you might as well just you know use Telnet. You know, if you're going to take the trouble of using something secure, make a password. Yes. I'm crying out loud. One hundred and three million one hundred and seventy. <laughs> 552 hits on the wow. password, wow. and I put that in quotes, 123456. Not easy to forget, uh, pretty easy to brute force, and everybody tries it. Um, and what was interesting was that was more than twice the number of hits of number two. Uh, number two, <laughs> yes, 1234567898. Oh, Leo! What, seven, eight, nine. That explains There's the, the other, other peak. tent pole, yes. The other little tent pole under that chart. Yep. Yep. That was as 46,027,530 hits. Then we have for the lazier people, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, just can't really be troubled to hit that sixth key. Uh, and then, believe it or not, at 22 million is QWERTY. Q-W-E-R-T-Y. Because, you know, it's right there in front of you. Uh, Also, almost equal to QWERTY, coming in with eight characters, is 20, just shy of 21 million. And the password is itself. P-A-S-S-W-O-R-D. And, you know, for someone who thought, I'm not going to go all the way out to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, I'm going to be tricky and stop at 8 because, you know, they're they're not going to check that. It's like, okay. Also, also in the six-character password category is 111111. And then we also, and then that was at 13.3 million. And we have 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3 because, you know, that's even trickier than one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, that's at two point uh, ten point two million. It's also easier to enter. It is, yeah. You don't want to, you know. Don't, yeah, brum brum. You're right. Uh, and then number nine is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero. That's just shy of ten million at nine point six four six million. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So basically, uh, nobody cares. You know, I mean, I mean and this, remember the, the the studies have been done. You know, if I, I got a candy bar here, would you give me your password in, in for a candy bar? And most people, yeah, yeah, I'm hungry. That looks like a good candy bar. Mm. Uh, is that a Milky Way? Yeah. Uh, so among their other findings, the researchers found that in their words, a stunning number of people use their own name. That's tricky. Uh, as their password, oh, Charlie. Charlie appeared as the ninth most popular password in the U- in the UK. Charlie bit my finger. <laughs> One Direction was a popular music related oh, yeah, yeah. password yeah, option. Yeah. A group. And the number of times Liverpool appears could indicate how popular the football team is. Ah. But in Canada, hockey was unsurprisingly the top sports related option in active use. Swear words are also commonly employed. Yes. yes. And when it come 
comes to the, the animal, <laughs> no, and when it comes to animal themes, dolphin was huh. the most popular choice internationally. So, Leo, it looks like monkey is out. <laughs> dolphin has replaced monkey. Dolphin has replaced monkey. I so, just you know, I'm, a plug for using oh, SSH keygen generate a yes. you know an ECC private and public key pair a, a certificate yep yes i do, do this it, on all you know at github yep. everywhere and at first yep. i was using the same uh, p- uh, private public key everywhere and i said you know what it's easy simple i so i have a different one for every machine makes it easy to revoke and a machine if you have a good ssh client it will keep them all straight for Absolutely. you and manage them yep so all you do is select who you want to log on to and yep. it does the job it's much better um, I use Bitvice for Windows, and huh. I'm really happy with Bitvice. Cool, that's a good tip. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. That's good. Yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm somewhat surprised since those are purely numeric, without any letters or special characters. Most contemporary websites uh, would never allow them to be used. But you know, I was thinking if they were in place before specific requirements began to be added to sites, you know, I could see as legacy passwords they could still be valid today. Well, and so, also SSH usually you're controlling the server. I mean, the server right. is probably not configured. That's a, good, that's to a be very that good secure point. Yeah. If it's allowing that, obviously. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Wow! Unbelievable. And if 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 this is enterprise login, because I mean the the uh, the, the presumption is that the, the, these are enterprise SSH servers, you know, how how could they not enforce a policy that makes more sense? That's just mind boggling. Well, uh, yesterday, the well known internet domain registrar and more recently cloud hosting provider GoDaddy said that a hacker gained access to the personal information of more than 1.2 million customers of its WordPress hosting service using a compromised password which gave the attacker access to the provisioning system in their legacy code base for their managed WordPress. So reading between the lines it sounds like they had a like a like legacy code base they had some like like a wordpress hosting management system that they'd stopped using right they like they were no longer using it but they didn't turn it off you know because hey if it's not broke wait till a hacker finds it uh Being one of the world's largest domain registrars and a web hosting company, providing services to more than 20 million customers worldwide, as well as being publicly traded, they needed to promptly inform the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. In the SEC documents, which were filed yesterday, GoDaddy stated that it discovered the breach last Wednesday after noticing what they called suspicious activity on their managed WordPress hosting environment. Subsequent investigation revealed that a hacker had unfettered access to GoDaddy's servers for more than two months. Yeah, ouch. Since at least September 6th. And based upon the available evidence, the hacker had gained access to up to 1.2 million 
active and inactive managed WordPress customers who had their email addresses and customer numbers exposed, the original WordPress admin password that GoDaddy had issued to those customers when a site was first created, for active customers, their secure FTP um, uh, login and database usernames and passwords were exposed for a subset of active customers. The SSL private key was exposed. Ouch. GoDaddy had already reset the secure FTP and database passwords exposed in the hack, as well as the admin account password for customers who were still using the default one that GoDaddy had originally issued when their sites were created. GoDaddy's currently in the process of issuing and replacing new SSL certificates for affected customers, and they've notified law enforcement and are working with an IT forensics firm to further investigate the incident. Customers were also notified of this, of all this, or like a sanitized version of this, actually, yesterday. And for those who are counting, this is not GoDaddy's first trouble with breaches. Last May, GoDaddy alerted some of its customers that an unauthorized party used their web hosting account credentials in the previous October of 2020 to connect to their hosting account via SSH. In that instance, GoDaddy's security team discovered the breach after spotting an altered SSH file in GoDaddy's hosting environment and suspicious activity on a subset of GoDaddy's servers. In other words, you know, they saw this guy doing stuff. And back in 2019, scammers used hundreds of compromised GoDaddy accounts to create 15,000 subdomains attempting to impersonate popular websites and redirect potential victims to spam pages offering bogus products. And before that, earlier in 2019, GoDaddy was found to be injecting JavaScript into U.S. customers' sites without their knowledge, thus potentially rendering them inoperable or impacting their overall performance. So there's been some problems. I registered grc.com in December of 1991, a few months after Microsoft registered microsoft.com. And I chose Network Solutions since they were the original Internet registrar. But our longtime listeners will know that I could finally no longer tolerate uh, Network Solutions' slimy upselling tactics. It was necessary to say no to various offers over and over again, and more annoyingly, to carefully read and uncheck various enabled-by-default additional cost services, which other registrars were by then offering for free. So I started to feel as though my loyalty uh, had become misplaced, and I decided that I had to move. Uh, As we know, I chose Hover, also a sponsor of the Twit Network, and I've never looked back. When I was making the switch, I considered GoDaddy. Mark Thompson uses them and recommended them. But they were too brightly colored and sort of (laughs) hyper-commercial looking. Talk about upsell. They're the worst. Oh, my God. Yes. And aren't you now Uh, glad 
that you did. Oh, didn't? Leo, their their webs. Yes, exactly. And that was the point I was going to make: is their website looked like a cartoon. Yeah. Um, and that's what I wanted to get away from. Right. The last thing you want in a domain registrar is excitement. Things are rather excited over at GoDaddy right now. No, thank you. What you want from a domain registrar is a great deal of boredom. Boring. Boring. Just, yes. Just yeah, just do that job and don't go jumping up and down and, like, trying to be more because, boy, you open yourself to this kind of mess. Yep. Um, okay, a heads up, an important heads up for our Netgear owners. I know we got them. Uh, last week, Netgear released a round of patches to remediate a high-severity remote code execution vulnerability affecting 61 different models. Uh, I've included a table of the impacted routers in the show notes below. Uh, but really, I wouldn't bother like looking for your model there. It's like all of them. All of our listeners who are using Netgear routers should make a point of checking in Right now, like, you know, after this podcast, for any available update. Uh, this one is another universal plug-and-play vulnerability, you know, UPnP, which, when exploited, would allow remote attackers to take control of a vulnerable system. The good news is most routers won't be exposing their vulnerable UPnP ports on the public Internet. On the other hand, GRC's UPnP Internet Exposure Test has counted 55,166 positive Internet-facing tests since I put it online. But I'm not logging unique IPs. Um, I do keep a, a most recently seen IP list I can't remember now how long it is and how I expire it, but it's like a day. The idea was I didn't want to be double counting Shields Up visitors if they did multiple tests, you know, like trying to get their routers configured right. And this thing, and all of the Shields Up system reshares that same uh, MRU list so that it doesn't double count. So 55,166 without, you know, recent double counting. Um, Okay, but anyway, uh, uh, hopefully, even if you don't have, if you have a Netgear router, even if you don't have the UPnP service bound to your WAN interface, all of these routers will have UPnP running by their on their LAN interface by default. And that exploitation is still possible. Exploitation could be by way of a malicious script running on a browser inside the LAN, thus accessible to the router's internal LAN interface at a known IP, right? The broadcast, the, the gateway IP and a known port. What is it, 1900 is, is, U, is UPnP? Um, and then... That would be used to make the router remotely accessible. So if you were to if you were go to a site that was hosting JavaScript or a malicious ad, potentially, that is running script on your browser. There, we've talked about the techniques used for browsers to access uh, the, the, the unprotected LAN port on routers. In this case, it is trivial to do this. In recognition of the severity, 
it's a sign a CVE of 2021-34991 with a CVSS severity of 8.8. It's a pre-authentication, meaning you don't need to authenticate, buffer overflow flaw, which appears to be uh, pretty much all uh, or present in pretty much all of Netgear's uh, small office, home office routers, and it can lead to remote code execution at the highest privileges. The vulnerability stems from the fact that uh, that the UPnP daemon accepts by design unauthenticated, because remember, universal plug-and-play is an unauthenticated protocol because the idea is it's just going to be like automatic. So you can't have to log in to the router's UPnP or it wouldn't be automatic. Thank you, Microsoft. Anyway, unauthenticated by design, HTTP subscribe and unsubscribe requests, which are event notification alerts that devices use to receive notifications from other devices when certain configuration changes, such as media sharing, occur on the network. But there's a memory stack overflow bug in the code that handles the unsubscribe requests which enables an adversary to send a specially crafted HTTP request and run malicious code on the affected device, including resetting the admin password and delivering arbitrary payloads. And as we know, HTTP requests are the things that web browsers routinely generate. So the idea of JavaScript doing this is not far-fetched. Once the password has been reset, the attacker can then log in to the web server and modify any settings or launch further attacks on the router's internal web server. So, again, if you're using Net, if you're using Netgear, just it's time to go see if there's an update. Uh, as of last week, there is for 61 different routers, and I'm seeing all the Wonder routers. You know the the WNDR. Uh, 3,000, or the 3,300, 3,400, 4,000, uh, 3,500. I mean, just, you know. I don't see the Orbeez in here. Um, no. And that's their mesh solution. Those are ah. RBL, I think. So that's good news, but everything else. Yeah. 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 So the guy who discovered and reported the trouble noted that, quote, since the UPnP daemon runs as root, the highest privileged user in Linux environments, the code executed on behalf of the attacker will run as root as well. With root access to a device, as we know, an attacker can read and write, do whatever they want to, traffic, modify, configuration, and so forth. So, again, update. Okay, Leo, I'm going to take a last recharge of, of water, and then we're going to, uh, we're going to need to... Uh, Wind up our propeller cap beanies. Uh, <laughs> I always love these. This is, these are my yeah, favorite this episodes. Little, <laughs> this is a little tricky. I think you're going to like this one a lot. Good. Propeller caps on the ready, folks. But first, a word from our sponsor, Melissa. Uh, did you know that nearly 36 million address changes were processed by the Postal Service last year? 36 million. Three million a month. Now, I bet you some of your very own customer data was on those lists. That means your customer data is out of date. Actually, about 30% of customer data goes bad every year. But fortunately, Melissa's here to help you keep your customer data 
up to date. Melissa's tools have helped businesses maintain fresh data for over 35 years. And now 10,000 businesses trust the address experts. And once people start using Melissa, they don't ever want to stop. Their renewal rate is over 92%. And I think it has something to do with the 25% typical return on investment realized by Melissa customers. What's the return? How do you get a return? Well, by not mailing stuff to the wrong address, mailing duplicate catalogs, sending bills to a non-existent address, calling a phone number that's out of service. All of those things cost you money. And yes, you can address uh, verify uh, phone numbers, addresses, emails, phone numbers, names, all in real time with Melissa. Melissa's global address verification service works with 240-plus countries and territories. And they can even do it right at the point of entry. Melissa's got an incredible API, so you can include this address verification in your software. They have their own software, the new Lookups app uh, on iOS and, and Google on Android, you can use it to search addresses, names, and more, and it's right at your fingertips. But that's onesie twosie. You probably have a lot more data you want to clean up. There's a variety of ways to do it. They have an on-prem solution. There's a web service. You can even use their secure FTP server, upload and download after processing. Software as a service. And, of course, that great API. And I know you care about this. Certainly, Melissa does security and privacy top priority for them. That's why they continually undergo independent security audits to reinforce their commitment to data security, privacy, and compliance. You need to be compliant in many businesses, many industries. They are SOC 2, HIPAA, GDPR compliant. Don't worry about that. And the best support. Their global support center offers 24-7 world-famous support. Just sign up for a service level agreement, and they'll be there for you no matter what. You find out about that at the Melissa website, melissa.com slash twit. While you're there, you can also see if your organization qualifies for six months of free service. They're still supporting uh, communities and essential workers during COVID-19, offering six months of free service. You can apply online at melissa.com. Congratulations once again. Melissa is in the G2 crowd report. You'll be happy to see. We always check this when we when we uh, take on sponsors. We like to see how they, uh, how they score on G2 crowd. Melissa scores very well. 89% for ease of use. 91% for quality of support. 96% in ease of doing business with. 93% meets requirements. So you can see their commitment to providing the best data quality and address verification software around. They really are the best. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started today. You get 1,000 records clean for free if you want to test it out at melissa.com slash twit. melissa.com slash twit. Twit, M-E-L-I-S-S-A. And we thank them so much for supporting Security Now. You're supporting us, of course, by using that address and signing up. Melissa.com slash twit. Okay, Steve, that bottle's almost okay. empty. You better <laughs> you better wrap this H- up here. <laughs> <laughs> HTTP request smuggling, also sometimes called HTTP desync attacks, Take advantage of the fact that much of today's modern Internet is far more complex than just a web client connecting to a web server. Any website hosted, for example, by Cloudflare provides an example of just how complex the Internet has become. 
Many of today's websites and web hosting applications employ chains of HTTP servers between their users and the back-end application logic. Users' requests are first received by a front-end server. It might be performing web filtering, load balancing, reverse proxying, and or caching. Whatever the case, this front-end server then forwards requests to one or more back-end servers. And not only is this type of architecture increasingly common today, in many cases, it's fundamental to cloud-based applications. It's, you know, built in. The assumption is that's the way that web content is being delivered. Uh, you know, uh, CDNs are, are operate similarly, very much like Cloudflare. For the sake of expediency and efficiency, the front-end connections to back-end servers are persistent and long-lived. This saves a huge amount of connection setup and teardown time, and the protocol is very simple. With the front end sending HTTP requests one after another to the receiving server on the back end, which parses the HTTP request headers to determine where one request ends and the next one begins. In other words, to determine the request boundaries, it, that it's necessary to parse the headers. Um, and when this is being done, it's crucial that the front end and the back end systems agree about the boundaries between requests, right? So the front end system is building these, you know, receiving them and doing whatever it's doing and then forwarding them. And and it's it's got a persistent link up to the back end and it's just sending requests down the pipe one after the other. Naturally, the back end is receiving these requests in you know from the from its end of the pipe coming from the front end and it needs to to understand the the start and the end of the requests if that doesn't happen if they if the systems do not agree an attacker might be able to send an ambiguous request that gets interpreted differently by the front end and back end systems, which is, of course, exactly what can be made to happen, and we're going to explain how. HTTP request smuggling is a slippery and tricky technique which deliberately manipulates the content length and transfer encoding headers of multiple HTTP requests in such a way that the various servers involved in servicing the requests get confused about the successive HTTP request boundaries. And they get confused in a way that allows clever attackers to achieve web cache poisoning, session hijacks, cross-site scripting, and even web application firewall bypasses. And unlike many of the interesting technological attacks and tricks we often discuss here, these are not theoretical. Last week, as I mentioned at the top of the show, one of the vulnerabilities that was being exploited used HTTP request smuggling as part of its attack chain. These are the real deal, and they're getting a lot of attention right now because 
<laughs> believe it or not, this was first mentioned in 2005. And because we don't have today's, we didn't then have today's, you know, multi-server linked cloud-based connectivity, it was like, eh, you know, kind of a, that then it was theoretical, not anymore. Okay, so I mentioned the content length and transfer encoding headers. HTTP request smuggling vulnerabilities arise because, unfortunately, the HTTP spec provides two different ways to specify where a request ends. That is the length of the body which is is appended after the headers. Remember that an HTTP request is a bunch of headers, like what the name of the host, uh, the, you know, if modified since, where you're able to say, okay, you know, I, I want you to send this to me only if it's been modified since a certain date, because the client that's asking already has a copy in its cache with that date. So it only gets things that are changed, you know. So this is the, the so-called metadata of HTTP requests. Uh, and, of course, famously, cookies are also in the metadata. Okay, so believe it or not, as I said, the HTTP spec provides two completely different ways to specify where a request ends. So you have, yeah, and remember, this is just ASCII text. It's going serially down a line. So you have a line of characters, then character turn line feed, the next line of characters, character turn line feed, next line of characters, and so on. So how do we know when a request ends? The content length header is very straightforward, and it's by far the most common method. It simply specifies the length of the message body in bytes. So for example, you'd have in a in a post query, you'd have post and then space slash search if that was the if the URL was search at this site and then you'd specify the host name that you're you're wanting to send this to, the you know the content type. Then you have content hyphen length colon and say that you had it as uh, say it was eleven, so you then have a a blank line to separate the headers from the beginning of the body, and then since this thing says content length eleven, the 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 server interpreting this will accept the next eleven characters as being the 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 content for this query. And what's significant about that is that then the 12th character that it is absolutely considered to be the first character of the next query. That in other words, the the thing specifying the boundary between the first and the second query is the the content length header for the first one which says exactly how many characters that follow are part of that query, and the implication is, and after that, it's a next query. And if it surprises somebody that, like, that's the way the world works, I mean, that like there isn't some special end-of-query character reserved or something, it's like, yeah, there isn't, that, you know, and pretty much things work, except when they don't. 
And this is an example of how badly it can be broken. So in this in this example, we have an eleven character string. Just for this, I'm looking at the show notes, but for those who aren't seeing them, Q equals smuggling. S M U G G L I N G. So that's eleven characters, and at the end of that ends this query. Okay, but I said there were two ways of specifying the length. The use of a transfer encoding header is also completely valid. It's a different way, a completely different way of specifying the the end of a query. And it, too, can be used to specify essentially the, the structure of the HTTP message body. The transfer encoding method is called chunked. When the transfer encoding header specifies chunked encoding, this means that the message's body consists of one or more chunks of data where each chunk consists of the first, the chunk size, which is specified in hex as a hex count. That is, it's a hexadecimal value that's ended with a line, with a new line, so character turn line feed, followed by that many characters. And so you have a chunk size and then a chunk. Then you might, of, of the number of characters specified in hex by the chunk size, funky as this sounds. And then you have another chunk, which could be, again, another chunk of some length. And you can have as many chunks as the sender wants to create. The message ends when, it, when, the, when the, the thing that's interpreting this query encounters a chunk of, 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 of declared of zero size. So, so again, if we were to to be sending this this Q equals smuggling line, instead of using content length, saying the content length is eleven, we say that we're going to use the transfer encoding style with the chunked method. So after the blank line following the headers is is a B, which is hex for eleven, right? 10, you know, you have 9, then A, then B. So you have 9, 10, 11. So there's just a B on a line by itself that that tells the thing that is reading this HTTP query that here comes the 11 characters in the first chunk. And so they read Q equals smuggling. Then the next line is a 0, which says that that's the end of the message because the next chunk there isn't any. It's of zero length. And so that tells the thing that is has received this query that uh, that the message has ended. Okay, now, first of all, the students of this podcast will immediately see how fragile this chunked encoding is. I mean, it is ugly. For one thing, it's doing a bit of interpretation. We know how we feel about interpreters on this podcast. But the big no-no from an architectural design standpoint is that it is mixing control metadata in with the data. 
We've previously seen, for example, how the immensely popular and powerful printf function, which is present in so many coding languages, suffers from a similar design vulnerability by mixing data and control metadata, right, those little format escape characters, into the same string. As we saw in that case of, of the Apple flaw, if an attacker can get control of that string, they can get up to a great deal of mischief. So as for HTTP, many researchers are unaware that chunked encoding is even like still around anymore and that it's valid in HTTP requests because web browsers don't use chunked encoding in their requests. They use content length and it's normally only seen in server responses, but it's in the spec and many servers support it. If they're going to be HTTP spec compliant, they must support it. Now, here's the problem. Since HTTP provides two <clears throat> entirely different methods for specifying, or I, I guess I'd be, I'd say for obtaining the length of HTTP messages, and one is quite fragile and susceptible to abuse, it's possible for a single request to use both methods. And this can be done in such a fashion that they conflict with one another. Um, this possibility was understood by HTTP's designers. You know, they had the transfer encoding, uh, or, or the they had the transfer encoding method and the content length method, and they realized, okay, these do different things, but they also sort of do the same thing. So. They attempted to prevent the problem of this kind of like header collision by simply stating that if both the content length and the transfer encoding headers are present, the content length header should be ignored. Now, unfortunately, that means that if they're both present, the more fragile of the two wins the contest. And it turns out that while this simple exclusion might be sufficient to avoid ambiguity when only a single server is in play, when two or more servers are chained together, bad stuff can happen. And as I said, in today's Internet, it's very often the case that you've got multiple servers chained together. Bad stuff happens because some servers don't support the transfer encoding header in requests at all. And some servers that do support the transfer encoding header can be induced not to process it if the header is obfuscated in some way. And I'll explain in a second. And here's the key. If the front end and back end servers behave differently in relation to the perhaps obfuscated transfer encoding header um, or content length versus transfer encoding, they might disagree about the boundaries between successive requests, which enables request smuggling vulnerabilities. Okay, so request smuggling attacks are created by placing both the content length header and the transfer encoding header into a single HTTP request and manipulating them so that the front-end and back-end servers will process the request differently. And naturally, the design 
of a successful attack depends upon the behavior of the two servers. So attacks come in three forms depending upon the characteristics of the specific servers being attacked. There's the CLTE attack, and of course that stands for Content Length Transfer Encoding. The CLTE attack, when both headers are present, the front-end server obeys the Content Length header, and the back-end server obeys the Transfer Encoding header. You have the reverse, the TECL attack. When both headers are present, the front-end server uses the transfer encoding header. The back-end server uses the content length header. And then you also have the TETE, Now, which means, might seem strange. When both headers are present, the front-end and back-end servers both support the use of the transfer encoding header, but one of the servers can be induced not to process it by obfuscating the header in some way. Okay, so how does this work? Let's take a look at the first case, the CLTE attack, where when both headers are present, the front-end server, the first server to, to see the request, obeys the content length header, and the back-end server uses the transfer encoding header. So in this request, remember, both headers are present. So in this example, we have content length specified as 13 and transfer encoding as chunked. So the body starts with a numeric zero on a line by itself and then a blank line to end that zero and then the word smuggled. So what happens? The front-end server... Oh, I'm sorry. So And also, we have so content link 13 and transfer encoding is chunked. But the first server, remember, it obeys transfer length encoding. So it, look, it, it says, okay, there's going to be 13 characters following. So that's the zero, the character turn line feed for the new line, um, and then this word smuggled. That's 13 characters... So that's what it sends. It sends, it forwards the entire request as received to the back end. But the back end server is more compliant with the HTTP specification, which remember, if both are present, transfer encoding wins. So it ignores the content length header and instead processes the transfer encoding header as it's supposed to. It therefore treats the message body as using chunked encoding. So what happens? The first thing it sees is that zero on a new line, that, that, that zero by itself and a new line, which tells it this message ended. That is, you know, you can send a, a, a post or a query or something with no body, so this so it sees this this 13 character body message as as a as a query that had no body which means it starts parsing what it assumes is a new query with the word smuggled of course this is just our example what is actually there is another HTTP request, right? 
And the first server didn't see that second HTTP request, which is being smuggled. It's because the content length enveloped the entire thing. So it just thought that was some, I mean, the, 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 the body of a, of a query can be anything you want. So it's not, it's, it's taken as a literal and just passed along. But the second server, because of that zero and the blank line, it's, and, and the fact that it's obeying transfer encoding, it terminates that first query and starts reading immediately afterwards as a next query, which allows someone to smuggle a query past the gateway, past that front server. It slips right through. Therefore, if our attacker had embedded some sort of useful query into the end of the first query, the front-end server, as I said, would not have seen it. It would have treated it as query data and passed it along. The back-end server would have seen that hidden embedded query as its own freestanding second query and would have acted upon it. So, obviously, if the front-end server is examining requests and functioning as an HTTPS firewall, a web firewall, um, a caching uh, server where it needs to know what's gone through... This technique slips a query to the back end right through a front end firewall. Now, it turns out the reverse of this attack, the TECL, uh, works just as well. It can be used when the front end server uses the transfer encoding header and the back end server uses the content length header in the presence of both. Basically, um, the, the attack is... Um, the content length in, in this example is three, and the transfer encoding is chunked. Since and, and then and then we have the the blank line at the end of the headers, then the number eight and the word smuggled, and then a zero. So of course, for the chunked encoding, eight is the number of letters in the word smuggled, and then the zero terminates the chunked encoding. Since the front-end server honors chunked encoding, it will interpret the message's two chunks as a single message and will forward the entire query to the back-end server, right? Because that's just a standard chunked encoding. It ignores the content length of three. But the back-end server obeys content length and not the transfer encoding. So it sees the length of three. Well, that gives it the eight and the character turn line feed. And that's so that's the end of the 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 query that it sees and it starts processing as a new query the word smuggled, or what would actually in practice be another HTTP query of some kind. So again, it is trivial if you've got two servers in a chain disagreeing about how they're gonna handle the content, basically how they determine the message query boundaries, you're in trouble. And the TETE vulnerability turns out uh, it's possible uh, there are some servers which will 
still process a malformed transfer encoding header like it should be transfer hyphen encoding colon space chunked. Sometimes you could do encoding space colon space chunked. Some servers accept that, some don't. Um, or you could use colon tab chunked. Again, some will, will regard that as white space and go, okay, fine. Some will look, look, look at it and say, hey, that doesn't abide by the, the spec. We're not taking it. So the point is, if you put two transfer encoding headers in the same query and format them differently, you can, you can again get differential treatment of the encoding of the message. And that's really what this comes down to, right, is some difference, differential between uh, what two servers in the chain of servers processing the, the query do, and that allows all of this to happen. Um, so I, I consider taking this to the next step by demonstrating how a smuggled request could be leveraged into various forms of devastating web attacks, but I think I've pushed a predominantly audio podcast about as far as I can. Uh, anyway, so you I need I a hope whiteboard, people, Steve, or a chalkboard yeah, or something. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Um, these, as I mentioned, these potential problems were first discovered and documented back in 05. Nobody was really that concerned. Researchers from Northeastern University and Akamai Technologies have written a paper titled... T-Rex, okay, a little cute there, HTTP request smuggling with differential fuzzing, which was just presented during the 2021 ACM SIGSAC, which is the Conference on Computer and Communications Security. Their paper's abstract explains, HTTP request smuggling, they've abbreviated HRS, is an attack that exploits the HTTP processing discrepancies between two servers deployed in a proxy origin configuration, allowing attackers to smuggle hidden requests through the proxy. While this idea is not new, HRS is soaring in popularity due to recently revealed novel exploitation techniques and real-life abuse scenarios. In this work, we step back from the highly specific exploits hogging the spotlight and present the first work that systematically explores HRS within a scientific framework. We design an experiment, experimental infrastructure powered by a novel grammar-based differential fuzzer. Test 10 popular server, proxy, CDN, you know, content delivery network technologies in combinations. Identify pairs that result in processing discrepancies and discover exploits that lead to HTTP request smuggling. Our experiment reveals previously unknown ways to manipulate HTTP requests for exploitation and for the first time documents the server pairs prone to HRS. And I have the chart that they produced 
as the last page of the show notes, and it is really interesting. They tested CloudFront, CloudFlare, Akamai, Varnish, Squid, HAProxy, ATS, Tomcat, Nginx, and Apache. That So those form the lines on one side of the table. The exact same set form the lines on the other side of the table. And so the table is populated with symbols representing where the entry point server along the bottom fed its data to the exit point server uh, enumerated down the left-hand side. The symbols show what happened. So like we, there are a whole bunch of large gray circles for Tomcat, which where version 1.0 chunked encoding was effective when, when Tomcat was connected to most of the exit points. Uh, let's see, all but, oh, there's also Varnish, all but Varnish and itself uh, there, there is a, a, a blank diagonal because you're not going to get differential handling when the same thing is talking to uh, another instance of itself. Uh, but, you know, CloudFront has a number of purple dots, which is double transfer encoding presences for a bunch of senders. You know, there's there's stars on various method version combinations. Uh, so anyway, the diagram shows what the researchers found when these 10 popular servers, CDNs, and proxies were fuzzed with a wide range of HTTP header mutations. That's when they talked about a novel grammar-based differential fuzzer. Basically, you know, fuzzing is just throwing everything at the wall and see what happens. And so they, they, they produced a technology. They automated the discovery of things that different servers connected to each other would handle differently. Um, one of the items uh, that uh, that I noted was the double transfer encoding, uh, which suggests that duplicate headers can also create vulnerabilities. So I have a link for anybody who's interested to the to their entire paper. I think it was 19 pages. Uh, they did a beautiful job. And, and the good news is this is now getting a lot of attention. Everybody is looking at it. You know, when this is done... Hopefully, I, I would say, well, I would say, I would love to say a month from now, maybe six months from now or a year from now, this chart's going to look different because this is now on everybody's radar and it's going to be, you know, clearly that this is not, as I said, just theoretical. Bad guys are already using this to essentially smuggle queries past border defenses Uh uh, and take abuse, uh, take uh, advantage of that, and to abuse these services. So, another very cool piece of internet technology been sitting there the whole time. Nobody really paid any attention to it until recently. And uh, that's what you're here for—to pay attention to stuff, so we don't have to. Steve Gibson, he's the man of the hour. Well, or the hour and a half, two hours <laughs> thereabouts. Uh, always uh, on a Tuesday, I look forward to this, and I know all of you do. We do the show, and you are invited to watch us do it live uh, every 
Tuesday right after MacBreak Weekly. So that's, you know, that varies, but it's around 1.30 to 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2200 UTC at live.twit.tv. If you're watching live, chat live at irc.twit.tv. Uh, of course, club members can chat in our Discord any time of the day or night. It's always a lot of fun in there. You should stop by. Well, you did, Steve. You didn't ask me anything a couple of weeks yeah. ago. That's yeah. available on the Twit Plus feed. The Discord, the Twit Plus feed, and ad-free versions of this show, all of our other shows, are all benefits to Club Twit members. You join the club for those, but also to support Twit, and we appreciate that. For more information, twit.tv slash club twit. Seven bucks, month to month, cancel any time. Uh, I think it's well worth the uh, the money. Uh, you'll find Steve at his website, grc.com. That's where his bread and butter lives. Spinrite, the world's finest Mass storage maintenance and recovery utility. If you've got a SSD or a hard drive, you need Spinrite. Uh, you should get a copy right now. 6.0 is out, but 6.1 is imminent, and uh, you'll get an upgrade yep. for free if you buy 6.0 now. And you could participate in the development of 6.1. There's a forum, a very active forum at grc.com. Leave feedback for Steve at uh, grc.com slash feedback. You should browse around, though. It's a great website. Lots of great stuff, including the show. Steve has a couple of unique versions of the show. Going back 15 years, you said we should have a uh, 16 kilobit version of the show for people like, you know, people live in Australia and have metered connections and so forth. So that is the smallest audio file available. It's a little scratchy, but it's it's small. It's quick. It's a, It's an easy download. He's got that. Does it faithfully every week, transcodes this into that. He's got the 64 kilobit he starts with. That's also there. Uh, he also has transcripts, and that's really a nice thing that Steve has been doing for some time. He pays Elaine Ferris to make really nice human-readable and human-written uh, transcripts. And which, searchable. And which are searchable, which means you can jump to anything, anywhere in the, in the entire um, canon of Security Now episodes, all 846. Um, all of that's at grc.com. Steve's on the Twitter at SGGRC. If you want to DM him there, you can also leave a message there. Those DMs are open. We have copies of the show, 64 kilobit audio plus video at our website, twit.tv slash SN. You can also watch as a YouTube channel devoted to security now. And I might encourage you to subscribe. I know you don't want to miss an episode. Uh, and you can do that uh, in your favorite podcast client. And if your client allows reviews, do us a favor. Leave a five-star review. Tell the world all about this guy. He's a uh, precious natural resource. The fifth head on Mount Rushmore, I think. Uh, Steve Gibson, thank you so much. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Hey, you don't have to wait till the weekend to get the tech news you need. Join Jason Howell and myself, Micah Sargent, for Tech News Weekly, where we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. Security now.